Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. In this episode, I speak with Ramona Bighead, an educator with over 22 years of experience who's currently in her second year as principal of the groundbreaking Gainai High School, where she and associate principal Charlton Weaselhead are using a combination of brain science and traditional ways of knowing to help Gainai youth find their identity and advance their education through innovative curricula. A prior instructor at the University of Lethbridge for, for, for two years in the Faculty of Education, Ramona currently is also a PhD candidate out of the University of British Columbia, examining the correlation between arts education and identity in Ghana youth. Ramona Blackfoot's name is translated as Many Sweat Lodge Women. She is a mother of seven and a grandmother of 21 and recently became a great-grandmother. If you like what you're hearing, Connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed, or even on Facebook. And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Ramona Bighead. Well, hi, Ramona. Thank you so much for joining me today. I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your business schedule. How are you today? I'm doing great today. That's great. I want to get into um, uh, a topic that has interested me. And so I was listening to the radio this uh, this past weekend, and I was listening to the CBC. And this is maybe new, but they were talking about, and it was a, is a, an indigenous radio program on the CDC, around combating colonialism and and i took a step back and i wondered if everyone knows what colonialism means and so that's what i'd like to ask you tell me tell me your definition of colonialism and what it means to you from the blackfoot perspective um well colonialism is um really when the newcomers um encroached upon traditional Blackfoot territory. And I think the earliest, um, the earliest recollection of the first newcomer to our territory was in the late 1700s. And um, so for us, um, it was a real, uh, for our, my ancestors, it was probably really um, an amazing thing to see for them at the time. And then in the, in, in the 18, whenever the um, Northwest Mounted Police uh, came out to the Western, Western, what is now Western Canada, um, a lot of them would have froze along the way. So our people, my ancestors helped them. A lot of them were, they weren't, they didn't, they weren't ill prepared for the um, the the weather 
and the landscape um, on the prairies here in Western Canada, uh, in Southern Alberta in particular. And um, so our people took pity on them and, and, and helped them. Uh, a lot of them were dying from um, different, different diseases and um, starvation and so on. Um, and then when the treaties were signed um, in 1877, the Blackfoot Treaty was signed at a place called Blackfoot Crossing. And uh, Blackfoot Crossing is just east of uh, present-day Calgary on the Siksika Nation um, on their reserve. So we get the treaties, and, um, and of course, no one has been able to translate that Blackfoot Treaty word for word from English to Blackfoot because the concepts were different. Our people understood that um, the, the newcomers were continually coming into our territory and um, by then the uh, buffalo had been systematically wiped out. People say the buffalo dis disappearance of the buffalo, which is um, a myth, they were systematically wiped out to, to subjugate the, the indigenous people on this land, Blackfoot in particular. So um, I think that when the newcomers came, they came with a specific idea and an, a specific agenda, which was to acquire this land so that um, the neighbors to the south, the Americans, uh, wouldn't come north to take over this land. Um, so Sir John A. Macdonald wanted to to unite uh, the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, the lands in between. So they the newcomers came with a specific purpose. And we know the history. I don't need to keep going on and on about the history. But the difference in perspective and how this relates to colonialism is if Blackfoot people were to go into another territory that was not Blackfoot, Let's say if we were to go to to the uh, east of us, maybe Cree people, north of us, probably be meeting up with some some northern Crees. Maybe we'd be meeting up with um, some um, Dene or or Dog Rib, and south south of us, maybe the Crow and and so on, the Sioux, because our territory um, is vast. It, it's north to the North Saskatchewan River which is present-day Edmonton, south to the um, Yellowstone River, which is near Billings, Montana, west to the Rocky Mountains and into the Rocky Mountains, that's where the Kootenai people would be, and east going into, into some say even to the Saskatchewan-Manitoba border. So what I'm saying is the difference is if we were to leave our traditional Blackfoot territory back then, we would understand that we are we are a leaving our traditional territory and going to another nation's territory, traditional territory. We would we would not think or even we couldn't comprehend going there and saying, "Okay, all you people on this territory, you are now going to speak Blackfoot. You are now going to practice our Blackfoot ways." 
You are now going to um, uh, raise your children in our Blackfoot ways, and you can no longer practice your ways because our ways are superior. That's the difference. So when the newcomers came, that's the dip, the big difference was they came with their own perspectives, their own di divine right, according to their um, the history of um, um, the um, the Western history in in um, I'm going to say overseas in England and so on, right? Um, and really, it was the British who were the ones who was other other nations as well, but mainly the British, you know, coming into the Americas and and imposing their divine right um, to to assimilate or to change us. So the difference, so if you look at it from those two perspectives, here you have on the one hand a newcomer coming over, imposing their ways on us, and forcefully. And they were able to do that because um, they had, first of all, like I said, our way of life was really diminishing. Uh, we had been hit strong by smallpox. Um, in fact, in 18, there was a big outbreak um, in the 1860s, I believe, just before the signing of the treaties uh, in our area. So our numbers had, had dwindled quite a bit. Uh, some say um, almost two-thirds of the Blackfoot had been wiped out due to smallpox alone. And then also... Um, with the buffalo being um, killed off by the newcomers, um, our, our, that was our livelihood. That was that was a big part of who we who we are, and um, so we. It was a time when we were weak, and um, and so they kind of, in a sense, came in at a time when um, there was a lot of um, probably, I would imagine, a lot of trauma. Uh, from a from a way of life that was being changed rapidly, um, and of course, uh, in our particular case, in 1870, January 1870, uh, the United States Army attacked um, one of our camps, Heavy Runners Camp, in what is now present day, uh, probably just about 10 miles east of present day Shelby, Montana, along what is now called the Marias River. But our people. Uh, we that we are that was Gaitai, which is the Bear River. So you have to look at it at contextual first. At that time, what what made, in a sense, colonialism? Uh, how would you say it? Um, easy or 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 attainable for the newcomers was because of our state at that time. So. So when we're talking about uh, what is colonialism to me, it's really it's just about another group of people coming on and coming in and, and encroaching their value system, their way of their ways of looking at the world and their laws and, and so on and, and, and enforcing it upon another people. Now, in our case, of course, we're talking about indigenous people. And um, so what also made that also made them be um, uh somewhat successful was we were put on reserves. Uh, all of a sudden, our large tract of traditional territory was cut like like to just a little tiny pinpoint um, compared to the larger traditional territory. So all of a sudden it, they had they also had the law on their side, the 
that we had no idea about. So you've got the law, then they bring in the church. So there was a quote by this, um, he was a commissioner, and he said, the, the bloods, the Gainai people think they're the cream of creation. Hmm. Uh, that's how much we, how, how we thought of who we are, I guess. Uh, we knew who we were, is basically it. And um, so he said, we have to, we have to, we have to stop that. We ha and how can they do that? They realized that the only way that they could um, uh, get our, get us to be more subjugated was to um, attack the children. So with the uh, with the um, Indian residential schools that were set up across the country, um, that was how they started to gain some success. And for for the blood people. They built two, can you imagine, in my community, they built two Indian residential schools. They were only within miles apart. And those two schools, one was Catholic, one was Anglican. And they divided our people, so much so that my aunt, uh, when she was going to get married in her younger days, um, she had to get permission from the Catholic priest to marry, well, my uncle, her husband, to get married, but they had to get permission because he was he was at the uh, he was Anglican, and the only reason he was Anglican was because that happened to be the minister or whoever that picked him up and brought him to that school. And the only reason my family, my grandmother and my my mother and my father were Catholic was because they happened to be in a say in a spot where the Catholic priest came and picked them up and brought him to school. So colonialism is, is, is really deep, but it's just basic. The basic understanding is that um, try, basically getting uh, another group of people to think the way you think mm -hmm. and without any regard for who they are originally. Yeah. I think that you provided a really good historical perspective in the basis. My next question is, how does that play itself out in in your life today so what do you think are the current effects of colonialism or do you have any life experiences that you think show this concept of colonialism and how it affects your life today um well i am my grandmother uh in 1924 i i believe around there in the tw early 20s was when St. Mary's Indian Residential School was built. And my grandmother, um, on my father's side, said she was one of the first generations of kids that were were put in that school. Brand new building, red brick building, white painted uh, windowsills and so on. Just your typical picture of an Indian residential school. And she, um, my grandmother, um, she really, she, she was, she kind of, she was really, she really embraced that, that, that way of life. She embraced Catholicism and therefore raised my dad to be, you know, um, strong Catholic and, and my mother as well. My mother, they both, my mom and my grandparents were there, my parents, myself. And, um, it wasn't until after, um, my grandmother left the Indian residential school. Um, she, 
her husband, who um, was her second husband, actually, not my dad's father, but her second husband. So it would have been my dad's, my dad's stepdad. He was very traditional. And so my grandmother um, went back into our traditional ways and, became, you know, was embraced the traditional um, Blackfoot or Ghanai ceremonies. And the same thing happened to my dad. My dad would often tell us um, that um, the Indian residential schools groomed him perfectly for the jail system. He said, "You just like in jail, in the residential school, you're told when to get up, you're told when to eat, you're told when to work, you're told when to go to bed. He said the only difference between jail and a residential school was you didn't have to pray in jail. But so as a result, you know, not surprisingly, many of our men ended up in the jail system because they were taken away from their families right from when they were children and um, and basically taught to work. My dad was made a good farmhand. And um, so on that side, my dad, um, a lot of his years, probably 20s in, into his 30s, my dad was was in and out of jail. And my mother... Um, on the other hand, she says that my grand, her grandparents, my mother was orphaned when she was really young, like a toddler. So she, her grandparents took her in. But when the old people died, um, she, they had no choice but to put her in a residential school. And she was about nine years old. So she started school a lot later. And um, my mother... Um, never liked to talk about her experiences at the residential school. She had an older sister, my aunt Beatrice told me a story one time that my aunt was about probably about four five, six years older than my mother. And, um, there were my aunt and the older girls were coming in, into the, into the school at the same time, the younger girls, my mother's age group were leaving the residential school. And back then, first of all, they separated boys and girls. Boys and girls were to have no contact with one another. My dad says he, he only saw his sister Ruby like um, at the beginning of the school year. And he never saw her after that. Like they were completely cut off from the genders, male and female. And even at that, you were also put according to age. So my, even though my mother was in residential school and her older sister was there they hardly saw each other because they were a different age group so they're walking in my aunt beatrice's group is walking in my, my mother's group are walking out and all my mother could do my mother just point just held out the tip of her finger to her older sister as they were walking and passing and my aunt pointed the tip of her finger so just the tips of their finger touched and when the other girls saw what my mom and her sister were doing the other girls started doing that they all started holding the tips of their fingers and what really gets me angry was um the nun saw that and she started slapping and hitting my mother and the younger girls and chasing them out and the older girls of course feeling really bad or just imagine, just touching the tips of your fingers. And um, so when my mother, like my aunt, like I said, my mother never talked about these, but my aunt did. She shared a lot of their experiences. And um, 
and my mother died from from she was an alcoholic right up until she lived to be about 74 years old and she never talked about these things but she drank and so alcoholism became a very a really like it was a part of our lives so when you say how how have i been um personally affected or or feeling the effects of it that's how most of us were our parents were not allowed to um express themselves and so you know i love my mom but she didn't know how to be a mother she was never taught in fact it wasn't until my late 20s i remember uh one of my friends asking me who's your who's your grandmother on your mother's side and i said well my mother was orphaned like i said and she said so who raised your mother and i explained how my mother was raised and she said so if your mother didn't have a mother then your mother didn't know how to be a mother and i said yeah pretty much and she says well then why don't you go easy on her and i think that was the first time in my life i started to really understand and have some empathy for my mother and for my father for the way it wasn't their fault and so today you know um i look at my own family dynamics my own children i i i grew up in residential school up until the age of 15 and that i left at age 15 because i got pregnant and i had my oldest son just before i turned 16 about 3 months before i turned 16 and had my children um but i lost my oldest daughter to suicide when she was 22 years old and that was probably about well in 2006 so almost about 12 years ago now when i talked to her children by the time she, before she passed away she had two children they were 2 years old and 3 years old at the time 10 years after i lost my daughter my daughter-in-law died by suicide so i now have three grandchildren who've lost their mothers to suicide my oldest daughter's two children and my daughter-in-law my son's one one daughter and so when i talk to them I tell them the bigger picture. I tell them I I explain to them about how how our communities you know there's a reason why we have such high suicide rates. So don't be too hard on yourself. Don't take it too personally um even though it is. These children are are growing up without their mothers. But at the same time I'm trying to get them to understand that that there's a much bigger picture that we need to be aware of. So so when I think about it many of many people in our community are are dealing with trauma now. We're dealing with um high like I said high suicide rates, addictions. Uh high you know addictions to um right now in our community this past week we had 32 or 38 um overdoses to carfentanil and fentanyl and we had i think three deaths so we our resources are really stretched thin and when people ask okay well why is it that way 
Well, okay. First of all, we're dealing with um, a community that's in poverty. Not a lot of our, our people are, are, are getting educated. And it's not, bec it's not because they don't want to. It's because they haven't been given or been shown that they can do it or, or have the opportunity. There's a few of us in our community that, that, are, that are, um, have really a achieved a, a good level of education, and um, especially within the field of education. And, and me, I've been an educator now for over 20 years. Um, so I'm able to see the big picture. But imagine living, living this life and not seeing the big picture of why things are the way they are. So what would I be doing today if I didn't know, if I didn't have the education or I didn't have the, the, the insight to why things are historically and why things are the way they are? Imagine if I didn't have all that. I'd be sitting and blaming myself. I'd be sitting there saying, this is all my fault. I'm, I'm not worthy of a better life. And, um, and if I lose my child to suicide, then that must be my fault too. You know, if my if 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 my parents died from their drinking, their alcoholism, well, there's there's that's their fault. They were just bad parents. They just didn't, you know. But when you stop and really educate and look at the bigger picture historically, that's why you have to talk about the history. You have to understand how things got to be to the way they are today. Now, the flip side of all of this, you know, there's a lot of resiliency and and I am a product of, of of you know a lot of our people who yeah these things happened to us we were raised by by parents who were ill-equipped to be parents and raised in poverty and and around addictions and so on um, but there's a lot of us who now have used that that as a source of strength and so the loss of my own child to suicide um, has made me even stronger today. You know, I, I, and, and same, I, I think I could say um, the rest of my children, because I, I have seven children and the rest of her siblings have, have become stronger because of it. So when you look at the, um, the person, you were asking me about the personal effects on me, I guess, um, that's that's how deep it goes, but to sit here and to talk about it, um, it's taken what did I say? Twelve years since I lost my daughter. If you had asked me this question twelve years ago, um, I, you'd be talking to a different woman. Mm -hmm. But today is you know today is today, and um, you know I now have twenty one grandchildren and one great grandchild, and um, so. The resiliency for our people, and I can say this for the Gannai people, is we never lost sight of who we are, um, and our traditional ceremonies are still intact. In fact, when they became banned in around the late 1880s, around there, um, they banned our traditional uh, sun dance or akukatsin ceremonies, and a lot. But a lot of our people just went underground and still practiced them. And so, even though they might have may have dwindled a bit, um, there were some people in our community who kept it going. Like I said, even though my grandmother was one of the first to be in Indian residential Indian residential school, embraced everything that she was being taught, 
she when she left she went back to our ways same with my dad he eventually um um went back to our traditional ways went back to our our sacred ceremonies and uh became one of our great leaders in our community and um so i think that um that that is the strength of our community is we know who we are as blackfoot uh yes we still struggle with um um teaching our younger generation the language and that's really something that's at the forefront for us is because uh if we lose the blackfoot language we don't have anywhere else to go in this world to learn our language so uh with the education system and with our with our local leadership we're really working hard to to revitalize and uh retain our blackfoot language so the strength that's come out of this is definitely evident in the people that are working hard with to make our community better and to heal from all of that We know that teachers all over Alberta right now are looking at changing the way they teach to infuse indigenous ways of knowing into their classrooms. They're they're talking about just what I talked just what I I talked to you about and that is this colonialism and they're talking about this history. Do you have any advice for people and I want to say newcomers to this land about incorporating more indigenous ways into their teaching. Do you have any words of advice or, or things that you have seen um, to do that in a respectful way or ways to, to just start having that perspective? Well, first of all, it's legislated. You have to, yeah. you have no choice. If you're teaching in the province of Alberta, you have to teach uh, first nation Métis Inuit perspective. Okay, so know that, that you have no choice. You have to do that. Second of all, um, if I was a, um, a, non, a non-Indigenous person and I, and I know this is, oh, now I have to teach this. How do I do it? Um, I would start with where is here? You ask yourself that question. Where is here? Upon whose traditional lands am I sitting on? Whose traditional land is this school sitting on who are the people who are the original people of this land start from where is here and that's not my quote that's from dr cynthia chambers there's actually she used to be a professor you look at the you look at whose traditional land you ask who are the original people of this land were they cree were they were they um blackfoot Keeping in mind, Métis were a little bit later, and there are some Métis settlements, so keep that in mind so that, you, yeah, eventually the Métis became, were here. You know, they, well, they were born here. Um, so, so you have to ask that question, where is here? Now, if you're not sure, if you're in a big inner city in like Edmonton or Calgary and Calgary, by the way, is traditional Blackfoot territory. South the south of the uh, North Saskatchewan River uh, in Edmonton is traditional Blackfoot territory. But maybe there are no Blackfoot people in your classroom. You're in Calgary or or, or Red Deer, wherever. So you look at your students. Who are my students sitting in front of me? Maybe some of them um, are Indigenous. And so maybe you want to start there. 
maybe ask the students, you know, do you mind if I, you know, if your grandma, would your grandma like to come in or your parents like to come in and share some stories about, about, um, about you, your family, your history and so on. Um, now if you still don't have anybody there, there are, um, like they're excellent. Um, Glenbow Museum has a really excellent um, Indigenous um, um, uh, exhibit there. Same with um, Royal Alberta Museum. Um, you know, that's what I'm getting at. It's like start, you have to start to look at where, you know, be practical about where you are. You don't have to go out and hunt down buffalo or. <laughs> You know, you don't have to go to those extremes, but, you know, just be be practical about it. And the other thing, too, is is be be um, be open minded, you know, be be prepared for some of the people are going to share their perspectives. That's completely opposite of the way you see things. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, I know you're supposed to teach different worldviews within the it's in the curriculum. You have to teach worldviews. In, in the social studies curriculum. So why not pick the worldview of that particular indigenous group that, that happens to be um, in the vicinity that you're, you're in? Um, and I would also, um, you know, be, the, the, the main thing though, I think is it, it's important to build relationships. Eh? You know, build good relationships with the people, but also build, relationships with the land take your students out have them get to know the land um and the animals and you know for many of our for most of our anything on traditional blackfoot territory there's going to be a story attached to it find out what is that story ask people and um, so right now, there's really no excuse for someone to say, oh, I don't know where to start. Oh, I don't know. Uh, that's just a cop out to say, oh, or the biggest another one people will say, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. So I won't go there, you know, so they back off because they're too afraid. It's an excuse, you know, get rid of the excuses and know that you have to do this. And it's incumbent upon upon every teacher in this province to, to do so. But it's also important that every school district provides those supports too. You can't just implement a, a policy and not provide supports. As a matter of fact, when the state of Montana legislated Indian education for all, um, they wanted everybody to know about the, the Indian history in, in the state of Montana. The um, some of the school districts took the took the the government the state the state legislature I'm not sure the terminology down there but they took them to court because they did not provide them with the resources and the support so that teachers could do what they were mandated to do so that's the other mm-hmm. thing is every school district it's their responsibility to provide those supports for um, the regular classroom teacher. I want to talk to you perhaps more generally about education, not just um, about colonialism and indigenous perspectives. 
Is there something about learning and education that you believe is true that most people or at least a high percentage of people would disagree with you about? Do you get pushback on something that you usually speak about? I think for the most part, um, I do understand that I am from this community and <clears throat> I'm teaching um, my within my own community of the Ganai people and have have been in education for like I said 20 since 96 anyway so I get that I'm from here and and I know most of the children the families they come from and so on and some a lot of them I'm related to and I feel like I can get away with saying um, certain things you know, I can get away with perhaps being some might consider if I in any other context a little too harsh on on um, on the students and on staff for that matter. Um, and I, I feel like I can get away with uh, with it because I'm from here. But the, but I know my boundaries, too. I know how far I can go. Whereas if if a non-Indigenous person were to say some of the things that I say. Um, you know, they'd probably be, you know, booted out of the community. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, I don't really see my, I don't really see my views as being too far into the left <laughs> so that, um, you know, I think I, I think generally speaking, um, having said all that, you know, uh, I could also, um, teach, in the public school system as well. And I feel like I could, you know, um, you know, like I, I, I know enough about the, the history, but I do remember in my, my one experience in my intern, when I was um, in the university of Lethbridge, we, we have, we spend like about five weeks out, you know, doing um, professional semester and some internship. Anyway, my, it was my first, well, my second year of um, this internship, and um, I was in, in Fort McLeod, um, placed with a teacher. And uh, I started, you know, back then, we're talking, this is like 90, in the early 90s. And so I'm bringing in all kinds of indigenous um, um, material, because my major is English. So it's bringing in, you know, indigenous writers and, and authors and and books uh, to this uh, junior high, I believe it was grade eight class or whatever. And um, the teacher came up to me, you know, pulled me aside and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm bringing in all these authors to show that there are indigenous writers out there, Tom King, you know, and so on. And, and he says, well, be careful because um, you don't want to alienate all the non-indigenous um, children in this class and my response was well how long have those three uh blackfoot boys at the back of your class been alienated in this class well the next day i was gone <laughs> he kicked me out he didn't want to work with me <laughs> but that's but we've come a long way hey from that and i would you know i'm sure today i know there was that uh the schools within that that I'm talking Fort McLeod. The schools have come a long way from that perspective. So I think, if anything, um, 
I got, I, I was getting my hand slapped mainly, I think, because this teacher was afraid and he did express that he was afraid that some of the non non-indigenous kids would go home and tell mom and dad who are on the school board you know what hey you know there's this there's this blackfoot woman teaching us about blackfoot history in my socials or my english class and you know so i think he was just very much afraid of what the what the um the ramifications of that would be on him but so you could see how long now you look back over 20 years later, you can look back and think, wow, we've come a long way. Now you're actually asking me, <laughs> you know, about uh, what would be good in to you know, what, what would we, how can we implement First Nation Métis perspective in the classroom? Yeah, we have come a long way and we've got a long way still to go, I think, too. We'll get there. When you think about your best learning experiences, the the experiences that really brought you along and the people that helped you to learn, who comes to mind or or what comes to mind? And and why do you think those experiences or those people were important for your learning? Or what was it about that that helped you to learn? The teachings that, that have really influenced the way I teach, I guess, um, would come from people like late Narcissus Blood, um, who was um, he was an older cousin of mine, passed away about three years ago. Um, very instrumental in um, in uh, he took me under his wing just after my dad passed away. Um, Narcissus came into my life, um, and he said he said that Narcissus told me your dad mentored me. And now your dad's gone, so you're, I'm gonna, you're gonna be my little sister. And when Narcissus left, I went to his daughter and I said, "Okay, your dad mentored me. Now you're gonna be my little sister." And so that kind of like continuing on that way. But uh, some of the things that I learned, uh, really, uh, the learning about how important our ways are, our history, uh, my research for my master's. Um, uh, took me into the 1870 Baker Massacre, where I learned one of Narcissus and I, our ancestors, when it was my grandmother's grandmother. Her name was Natukyayaki, Holy Bear Woman. She walked away from that massacre. She was orphaned there. She was just a little girl, and she survived. Most of the survivors were um, were children. And um, because this little girl walked away, and she eventually, you know, came into Canada because this happened on the United States side. Um, Narcissus and I, and many of her, her descendants are still here today. And um, so I think that through Narcissus, he taught me um, how important it was to know your history, know who you are. So if people ask, well, how do you know this is traditional Blackfoot territory? How do you know that? We, because we know the stories. We know the place. We know this where the ceremonies. We you know we've learned the songs and so on. So he would have been a very. He's a very you know to this day, but still very influential in my life. And um, and I think to um, my you know my parents, um, I learned a lot from them. Their influence is still very strong in my life. Um, a lot. I catch myself. Um, saying some of the exact same things, you know, my parents would say, 
uh, telling the same stories my parents would tell. Um, and then I guess, you know, in, in, in the work that I do now, now I, of course, I'm, I'm still working on my dissertation. I'm, uh, looking at the, my, looking at the correlation between, uh, theater and identity and Blackfoot youth. So I've had an opportunity to interview a lot of our elders from here, uh, to look at what is identity and, um, and so I've had the opportunity to to sit with people who've passed on now, and um, they've they've shared their knowledge with me. People like the late Andy Blackwater, who passed away last year, I think, and and um, shared shared a lot with me about uh, just about Gainaisen or Gainaibatabisen, which is Gainai way of life or Gainai way of knowing. Um, those were so the elders are very a very integral part of my my uh, teachings my learnings in life and um, throughout the years I've had influences in education like like I mentioned earlier Dr Cynthia Chambers who was my uh, she was my um, supervisor for my masters and her and Dwayne Dr Dwayne Donald whom I taught with for 10 years here at Kainai High School. Um, and now I'm the principal of the, the high school that I taught at for 14 years. Uh, so I've had, I've had, you know, quite a long list of people who influenced me. And I think with Dwayne and Cynthia, um, they, they made me feel like um, that I, I had, um, I have something to say. And um, they gave me the confidence, I guess, to to say those things that need to be said that maybe it can only be said from uh, Indigenous woman, you know, um, from a Blackfoot woman. And so, but but I'm not just saying that I could say things just to say it. You know, I'm talking about um, expressing um, a perspective that that. Um, needs to be um, heard, you know, uh, a perspective that that people might find um, important. So I've had a lot of, like, a lot of influences and, um, you know, and, and sometimes even just a simple thing of um, sitting in a sweat lodge ceremony and um, smoking my pipe, that gives me a lot of uh, perspective on life and what is really important. So I'm not sure if I answered you. I think you did. I think you did. Uh, I've got a couple uh, shorter questions, but before I do, I know you're a big fan of LeBron James. Tell me, what's it about LeBron James that connects with you or that you admire? Let me show you something. <laughs> And where did you hear about LeBron James? Oh, I've got my sources. Uh, I've got my sources, Ramona. Can you see that? I can. Okay. This is a newspaper article that was, um, I found, I actually went to Cleveland while they were still champions. They won it in 2016. And I went to watch a game. I had to go watch them in Cleveland because they were still the champs. And um, so this is a newspaper article uh, Monday, June 20th, 2016, and June 20th is my birthday. And um, this is just, they just 
glazed it onto this frame. And that's LeBron with the championship. Nice. See that? So anyway, um, I actually shared this with my students at an assembly about a week ago, a couple weeks ago. I talked to I said, why LeBron James? I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, first of all, he's, he's just phenomenal. Um, and I would say, dare say, the greatest player of all time. I don't compare him to Michael Jordan or, or Kobe or any of the others because they were, they, it's a different game today. You know, they're, it's a different um, era of basketball. So it's not fair to compare, but I do say he's the best player on this planet at this time. And um, anyway, when I started looking at this kid, I first noticed him towards the tail end of his first time with Cleveland. I started noticing this ball player and I was like, and of course, basketball is like a religion here in the South, just so you know. And I remember watching this kid and I was like, holy smokes, this kid is good. And then not long after that, he, that's when they, the big hype to go to Miami. And by the way, I've been to Miami to a game. <laughs> And um, stuck with him there, went to uh, back to Cleveland, and then now now I have a um, Lakers jersey. <laughs> so I have like jerseys from Cleveland, Miami, and Lakers. But why do I like LeBron? Um, when you look at his story, um, he grew up single mother. He was born to a single mother who was sixteen in uh cleveland and, and i when i went through cleveland um in 2016 you can catch the from the airport to downtown cleveland you can catch the train and um so i got to see you spend about a good maybe 45 minutes on that train you know from from the airport so you kind of get to see what the city looks like and it's it looks really run down like um poor so I, um, so I, I, what I, that was my first impression of the city. And when I looked into his autobiography, started learning more about him. He was born to his mom who was 16 years old. You never hear him mention his dad. So I'm not even sure if he knows who his dad is. Um, but he never mentions it. Um, but when his mom was 16, when she had him, she lived with uh, her mother in um in in Akron, Ohio. Um and they were they weren't very well off. They were poor. In fact, in the living room of a grand the grandmother's house, LeBron's grandmother, there was a big hole, I guess, right in the living room and you could just see right to the dirt, you know, underneath the no basement, but just this big hole in the living room. And I and it, so their their home conditions are probably very um like uh, living in a real dilapidated um, house. But then his grandmother died, so they lost the house. And so LeBron, you know, and his mother were homeless. And But by the time he got to middle school, the coaches started realizing that there was something about this kid. So at some point during his middle school years, um, he actually, the coach took him in, and he lived with his coaches and, just so he'd have a home to go to. And um, some of the things the coaches would tell him was like, you know, use 
use basketball as a vehicle to a better life. You've been given a gift, use it. And that's exactly what he did. And of course, you know, um, he got drafted right out of high school, can't draft out of high school anymore, but he got drafted right out of high school um, and started playing and, you know, just, you know, of course, then, you know, the rest. But today, um, he, they recently, the Lakers actually recently had a game about two weeks ago in Cleveland and they just welcomed him like back. They had this big, um, um, televised, you know, uh, tribute to him and, um, he built a school there and in that school, every kid in that school gets a meal and um, and we ha- we offer that here at our school. Everybody gets breakfast and lunch here. Um, every kid gets a meal. Every kid gets a bicycle because he said his bicycle was his uh, savior because he would whiz by the drug dealers, whiz by the bad influences on his way to school. And so every kid that's going to his school um, has ha- gets a has a bicycle, a helmet, all their um, their, you know, school uniforms, jerseys for playing sports are all included. So here's a guy who's got gazillions of dollars, but he's giving back to his community. And so I told my students last week, I said, you know, you could be a LeBron hater all you want, but you can't change the fact that this guy is good. And for the past seven years has made it to the brought his team to the to the championship like I've been able to watch basketball right up until my birthday in June for the past few years because of him I don't know what's good I don't know about this year but um, <laughs> they can pull it off but I still you should hear the people I, there's so many people who just love to tease me and um, I got a I got a text last night from one of my friends in Montana and, and I didn't watch the game last night but apparently they got beat pretty bad by Denver. And uh, my friend so, sends me a text, pretty quiet tonight. Because <laughs> like, I didn't know. And I said, well, I just came back from our senior boys' home opener, and they won by like 50 points. And and then he just said, well, your team just got beat. And I, you know, so people like to bug me. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I like LeBron. Well, those are pretty good reasons. Yeah. Uh, let's close out with maybe talking about what are some of the next things that you're working on. Um, I know you've got a, a PhD to finish, but um, what are some of the other questions or projects that you're looking at tackling next? You know what? I went to a, um, I went to a language conference. It was an indigenous language conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico last month. And there was a topic that really intrigued me and I need to do more research on it. Epigenetics. And um, I um, so how it was explained to me was apparently talks. I think I don't know what the the definition of epigenetics is, but it has to do with the fact that that um, our bodies um, can remember traumas, you know, from even from ancestors, like previous generations. I want to really take a look at it more. So that's kind of one area that. That's sort of sitting there that I would I would love to explore more, but I don't know enough about it now to really. I just have all these questions. Well, that seems fascinating. 
Uh, Ramona, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I'm really honored to, uh, to have been able to speak with you and for you to share your experiences and stories. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi or Blackfoot, Métis, and Dakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.